Good morning, good morning, good morning. It's always good to hear happy sounds with one another. I don't hear any great weeping or gnashing of teeth. Good morning, my name is John Parker, and uh, to the usual crowd in the middle section over here, I'm usually known as Dr. Parker because my normal job is to teach uh, Bible at Barry. I like to say I'm the Bible guy at Barry. I'm a little scared to tell you that because you'll expect too much from a sermon. Uh, but that is my job on a regular basis. It's my privilege to get to teach that. I'm also an Anglican minister, and uh, my wife and I and our fam- four boys have been worshiping here for the last couple of years, and it's just a joy to be in the fellowship of uh, this part of the family of God and to, to be with you week in and week out and to be fed together and to enjoy the Word and the presence of the Spirit together. Amen. Well, BP asked me to preach this morning, so I'm going to do my best to fall in his good shoes. I'm not nearly so funny as he is, but um, I'll do my best. Um, this morning, I, I have to confess I have a, I have a, a problem, a little addiction. Um, when I wake up in the morning, the first thing I want to do is check my podcast for um, a news program that I get every morning. And I have to work really hard to try and open my Bible. I am the Bible guy at Barry. I have to remind myself that. Okay, open the Bible. Find an audio Bible of the Bible, audio book of the Bible, and put it on. And, and try so that and before I check the news. Because the first thing I want to do is check the news. And I, I don't know. Lately, it's, it's been especially... Uh, uh, addictive sort of feeling that I've had, a very visceral feeling that I've had. I've always wanted to be sort of an informed person that can sort of have conversations with almost anybody and chat with people. It's nice to be informed and be able to talk about something with everybody. But lately, I've just been sucked into the vortex of what is happening in the news. Um, You know, I'm really drawn into the conversations, uh, especially political conversations about what's happening in our country. What do we think it means to be American? What do we think it means to be human? And I I love to listen to the news and try and figure out, okay, that person's right. That person's wrong. I know what I would say about that. Basically, I'm just ready for the Supreme Court to call me any morning. Just if they need a consult, I can tell them how they need to make a decision that day. Um, you can probably see the neurosis in that. I, I, I can admit that. I wonder if you have something that possesses your soul like that. Maybe it's something a little more noble, like your, your job or your family or your psychological or emotional health. Something that when you get up, it's right there at your door, wanting to grab your heart, wanting to grab your attention, wanting to push you to think about it. Answer me, answer me, answer me. Maybe it's Maybe it's just one of those apps on your phone that has the little notification that blocks up, and you're like, 19 from Facebook, must find out. Um, Whatever it is, I think there's a kind of a problem. I think Ryan already touched on this this morning. In our contemporary age, in our digital age, we are in a culture that is demanding our attention and calling for our attention and wanting to drive the conversation of our hearts. And this morning... And I want to draw our attention to a psalm that speaks to that temptation. And that says that actually we don't need to answer that call. What we need is our one Lord. And to focus and calm our hearts before him. And to know the will of God in our lives. And if we will calm ourselves and know the will of God in our lives, all the things that we think are urgent and important will find their proper place, will be filled with his presence, will be filled with his wisdom, and will know how to address the urgencies of our day. Amen? 
So that's where I'm going this morning, and we're going to do that through a psalm called uh, Psalm 131. It's one of my favorites. It's just three verses long, and uh, it'll be fun to look at it together. In the ESV, it runs like this. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. The Psalms come to us from Israel's life. They are the hymn book of the people of Israel. They were the songs that they sang, and it's always a pleasure, like this morning we got to sing song, Psalm 40, to sing with the people of Israel, to remember we are part of a, of a continuing people of God, singing the same songs to the Lord. These are the songs that Jesus sang. These are the poems that Jesus meditated on as he um, a- a- applied his ministry. And I want to draw our first attention just to the first two words, actually, O Lord. Because for us, O Lord is not a very uh, radical thing to say. We use O Lord all the time. O Lord, O Lord, you know how I need that parking space. O Lord, O Lord, please help me to get to work on time. O Lord, O Lord, what is going on in here? If you're a parent uh, and you see what's happening, right? We just use O Lord all the time. For us, it just being downstream of a Western culture, the, our pantheon of our cosmos is filled with one seat, it's one God, oh Lord. You know, we just use Lord just because there's one God in our universe. We even say that in the West, um, even atheists don't believe in one God, right? We only have one chair for that argument. But in Israel, that was not really the case. In Israel, there were other options. Um, there were other idols that were around, other powers that were nearby, that other people, neighbors, were tempted to worship. Names like Baal, or Baal, as we say in, in Bible studies. Um, Ashtoreth, his goddess consort. Um, these gods were gods that maybe Israelites weren't really tempted to neglect God, oh, you know, say nothing about the Lord, and say something about Baal and Ashtoreth instead. But they were tempted to hedge their bets. And we can see this actually in sort of the archaeology of ancient Israel. We can find um, bowls and uh, uh, pottery that's inscribed to the Lord and his name. And we can find, find pottery and bowls are inscribed to the names of the Baals and Ashtoreth. So we can see that there was this struggle within Israel. And you can see it if you just read the history of Israel in the Bible. There was this struggle. And it was a struggle to hedge your bets. Yes, amen, the Lord, the church thing. I'm supposed to say, and to the powers. You know, and to the God of the rain that would come and bring me actual crops. Because that's just practical. It doesn't make sense to just say yes to the Lord and not say yes to the God who actually controls the rains, right? Um, and the Ashtoreth, the goddess of the earth that brings forth the crops. I better just hedge my bets and worship them alone, uh, worship them as well. That was the temptation. The temptation of powers to address them and to name them alongside the name of the Lord. So to choose to say, O Lord, and say nothing else, to dress only God, is a choice to the one Lord. A choice that makes a difference. To choose that, no, it's not, God is not just the God of the religious side of my life. God is also the God who supplies my produce, my income, and takes care of my family. The Lord is God. 
O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, said the psalmist in Psalm 8, which was kind of a remarkable thing to say when you're this tiny little country of Israel and you look over and you've got Egypt over here with really big pyramids. And you look over here and you've got Babylon with really giant ziggurats and you're a little Israel with some wheat. It's the dramatic thing to say, O Lord, our Lord, the God of our country, is actually God of the entire earth, of that big nation over there and that big nation over there. Actually, our God's in charge of it all. And I'm not hedging my bets. I'm going to stick with my God, the one that I know, the one that has brought us through the seas, that has brought us out of slavery, that has brought us into his domain of goodness and that he has provided for us. I'm going to choose that God. This psalmist is committed to the ways of the Lord, and he's not hedging his bets. He's not choosing idols as well. And it's really tempting for us to think that we've kind of grown out of idols. That, you know, nobody, you don't meet people who say, sorry, I've got to leave lunch early. I've got to go down and, you know, sacrifice the goat to Baal at the temple down the street. I've got to go do that. And you're, you know, nobody is like, I, you know, I've got this uh, Zeus over there. He's really hungry. I need to get a burger over to him um, after work, you know. So we think we've kind of grown out of idols. And one of the, one of the things that Jesus speaks to when he comes to his earthly ministry, as he says to the people of God who have said, well, we've given up idols long ago. We have the law. He said, yeah, but you've turned the law into an idol. Idols don't go away. They just change names. And idols lurk even in this room, even in the church, even in our society today. They are things that we are tempted to come up with our own definition of and give our allegiance, give our service, give our time to those things and not to the Lord alone. Let me give you some examples. Things like patriotism, things like profit, things like progress, equality, family, comfort. Now, all of those things in and of themselves can be good things, right? Amen? But if they are not brought under the definition of God and what he says about what it means to be a patriot, what he says about what it means about to be equal and giving to all, what he says about what it means to have profit and manage our economic system, then all of those things can become idols. I had a conversation recently with a parents of a student who felt called for the, to go to the mission field, to the border, the frontera of Mexico and the U.S., and a kind of a dangerous area. If you, I've spent a little bit of time in Mexico, and they'll tell you the frontera is a dangerous area. Borders are contentious places. But this student of mine felt really called to go to the, to the border. And I'm talking to the parents, how are you feeling about your daughter wanting to go to the border? And he's like, I'm not sure that the Lord wants her to do that. You know? And I think for him, there was this challenge between the goal of God to bring salvation and redemption to every corner of the earth and the potential idol of family and taking care of my daughter, which is a good thing. But is it, can it get in the way of what God wants to do for his kingdom and his glory? Sure. And so we have to keep choosing again and again, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, and not assume that we think we know what God wants about everything, but to let God be God, to let God be God. Um, In a book called Wayward Christian Soldiers, um, Charles Marsh has an interesting quote about um, the conversation about what it takes to be a thinking Christian in a political environment. And he says, um, he started talking about the importance of theology in this conversation. He says, 
He wants to start with the first commandment, that sometimes it's important for us in our context of our culture to name the Lord as Lord and follow what he has to say, not our own presuppositions about what we think the, needs to happen in a country or in our environment. He says this, um, the first commandment, uh, he's, he's quoting uh, and summarizing the arguments of theologian Karl Barth, the first commandment is the absolutely fundamental and foundational presupposition of theology, of thinking about God. The commandment issues a permanent and unassailable reminder that none of us controls God and that true piety always resists the temptation to lay claim to the holy. True piety always resists the temptation to lay claim to the holy. Idolatry is when we put something else in the name of God. We don't take time to ask the Lord what he thinks about our lives and what we are doing. For me and my family, it's probably the idol of responsibility. Um, raising my four boys, it's very tempting for me to teach them. I want them to be res- responsible boys. I want them to let their yes be yes and their no be no. I want them to um, answer to um, directions that I give them. I want them to be responsible people. But if I don't let that word responsibility be informed by the story of God, by his mercy and his grace for me when I haven't been responsible, if I don't know that responsibility is for a cause and not just for the sake of responsibility, I could very easily grow children, young men, who answer to the call of responsibility, the idol of responsibility, rather than the answer to the Lord and how he informs what responsibility is. I could stick with them for a long time. I, I do put some money into a little counseling dish on a regular basis to help them. Um, but that could stick with them for a long time to unmask what it means to be responsible before the Lord and not just answer the call of responsibility. We have to let the Lord be Lord for him to speak to us about what it means for us to enter life. Idols lurk everywhere. And we need to keep opening the door to the Lord to allow him to reorient and to challenge our assumptions about our lives. That's what this psalmist does to give him claim. Okay, moving on. Let's see what the psalmist tells the psalmist has to say. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. My heart is not lifted up. Now, I don't know what you think of when you, I think this whole verse is talking about being content, right? About letting the Lord be the Lord and then being content with what the Lord gives us. I'm not sure what you think of when you hear, my heart is not lifted up. What does that mean? My heart is not lifted up. It sounds good, right? It sounds very biblical. My heart is not lifted up. But what does it mean? Well, in in Hebrew, the heart is the seat of decision-making. It's the thing that you use, the organ that you use to make decisions. We often think of the mind as the seat of decision-making. I will make my decisions based on my mind, what I've decided. Um, The heart is what Hebrews thought of. And it, it does a good job of capturing how we don't just make decisions based on logic alone. There's often a lot of feeling involved. And the heart is this complex of thought and emotion. My heart is not lifted up. What does that mean? It's not raised high. Well, maybe the best way to capture this is another example in the Old Testament where this verse, this kind of phrase is used. In Proverbs 18.12, it says, before destruction, a person's heart is lifted up. Or as we say, haughty, high, right? My heart, a person's heart is lifted up. Before destruction, a person's heart is lifted up. You have a heart that is set on your own ways, a higher path that you think is right. The proverb continues and it says, but humility comes before honor. The psalmist is speaking to himself saying, my heart is not lifted up. I'm, I'm choosing and repeating between you and me, O Lord, to choose 
that I am not going to choose my own way. I'm going to choose your way. My heart is not going to be lifted up. I'm not going to be proud in what I decide to do. Um, I'm going to let you choose that. I'm not going to be ambitious with my life. I'm going to let you choose to give me what you want for me. A couple of stories in the Old Testament that draw out this, but maybe one of the best ways to get at um, a picture of what it means for it to not be ambitious and to wait on the Lord is to look at um, Mark 1. I'm always struck by this. Jesus um, is uh, been in Galilee. He's um, waited until after the Sabbath is over to heal the sick and the oppressed. Um, and it says he rises very early in the morning while it was still dark. And he departed and went out to a desolate place. This is Mark 35. And there he prayed. Now that's kind of an interesting statement, isn't it? Jesus got up and went and prayed. How much more do I, before I turn on my podcast, need to get up and pray? <laughs> Jesus went up and prayed. What was he doing when he was, when he was praying? What was he seeking as he was praying? And Simon and those who were around him searched for him, and as they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. Why? Because he just finished healing a whole bunch of people, and they're eager to see some more, right? They're eager for him. And so his answer is, great, let's set up a tent meeting and a church here, and we'll have lots of attenders. No, that's not what he says. It actually says, um, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. Right? He is not stopping with what would draw attention to him, what would give him a lot of honor in that city. It seems as though he's gotten up very early in the morning and gotten directions from the Lord to do something different, to see what the Lord has, to see what the, Lord, what the Father has directed him to do. And so he went out all throughout Galilee preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. My heart is not lifted up. I'm not going to assume that I know what the Lord wants from me. I'm going to check it with Scripture, with the Spirit, with your call for me, because it's too easy for me to get caught up in my own agenda. It's very easy to get caught up in our own agenda. It's easy for us to caught up in our own defense, our own advancement. I work in a workplace. I shall name no names or uh, say any dirt about Barry. I love working at Barry, but I will say that Barry is filled with humans just like me. And, um, you know, in a workplace... Uh, it's tempting for me to watch how my colleagues act and sort of anticipate when they're in a bad mood or when they are going to make a decision that's going to affect me. And my brain, better or for worse, is kind of plotting how I'm going to manage my conversations with my coworkers. Um, anybody here do that? Your brain is kind of working at how you're going to manage your coworkers. And it's just easy to get caught up on our agenda. How am I going to defend myself? How am I going to advance myself? The Bible calls us to look at ourselves through God's eyes and to abide by his limitations, to say, I have something for you here. It's not about what you can figure out. It's about what I have for you in this place. Can I be content in my place when my colleagues are not predictable? Can I be content in a place when my colleagues are plotting their own selfish advancement? Do I contest with them? Do I also advance myself, selfish, advance myself selfishly? Or do I... Trust the Lord. Do I be calm in my soul and let him take care of me? I hope the latter. I, have not, I do not raise my eyes too high, says the psalmist next. My eyes are not raised too high. I wonder what we think about what that means. There's 
a couple of different possibilities. The one that really grabs my attention is the, the way that in the, in the stories of Genesis with Abraham, there's this repeated thing that happens where Abraham is um, apparently looking down because the thing the Bible says, he raises his eyes and he sees. He raises his eyes and he sees. It happens in chapter 13, 18, uh, 22. And there's all these moments where he raises his eyes and he sees. And what he sees is a gift from God. He sees the Lord providing. He's in a contest with Lot, and he raises his eyes, and he sees a valley that he can reach. He can pick any plot of good, fruitful, arable land in in the Holy Land, and that gets to be his. He raises his eyes, and he sees the gift of the visitors who are coming. It ends up being the Lord, this kind of disguised, to come and meet with him. He raises his eyes, and he sees the ram that is going to supply the sacrifice rather than his son Isaac. Every time Abraham lifts his eyes, he sees a gift that God has given him. Would that we would be patient and accept the gifts that the Lord has given us. I think what this psalmist says, I've not raised my eyes too high, is he's saying, I'm not raising my eyes looking for the other gift. Thank you, God. I appreciate all the things that you've given me. Thank you for my house, my job, my kids. What else have you got for me? You know, raising my eyes above what the Lord has given me. What else is on the horizon over there? What's my neighbor got over there? You know, what kind of car are they driving? <laughs> Rather than being content with that which the Lord has given me. Contentment with what the Lord has given us is a deep value and it helped in scripture and it helps us to focus our attention on the Lord rather than the earth beneath. I do not occupy myself with things too great and marvelous for me. It's easy for us to forget that it is God's will for us, his ambitions for us, his desires for us that we just need to accept and not plan and plot our advancement. Hebrews 13.5 says, keep your life free from the love of money. And I would add position. We don't have to love positions, love advancement. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I think in this cultural climate, it's very tempting for us in a market-driven economy to think that The good is the six days a week that we put in and we make a profit and we do our work. And God loves our good work, amen? He made us to do good and fruitful work. But if we begin to think of ourselves as only workers, as only people who are making more money, rather than people who are beloved of God, we'll lose our identity. You know, the, the market culture has to answer to the Lord who looks and says, life does not consist in the abundance of things. What can a man give in exchange for his soul? These are the measures that God has of our lives, not how much money we have, how far we get in life. For me, this really comes out on social media. Um, I will open my Twitter account and I'll flick through. I have a friend who has, I think right now, I didn't check before service, it probably would have done something negative to my soul. He's got, I think he's got 15,000 followers, you know. And, I'll, I'll, and I, it's very tempting for me to look on social media and think about, look above what um, the Lord has given me, to look beyond what God has set out for me, and to think about, oh, I I should be like that. Oh, why don't I have that? There's a rise in our culture of uh, the rise of social media and the rise of despair because we start comparing. We start looking for things that are not uh, what God has given us, but things too great and too marvelous for us. And it's good to remind ourselves to focus on what God has given us, to be content with what we have, and to follow the world, to follow the Lord, not the world.
We don't need a rise in comparison. We need a rise in keeping our eyes on God. Comparison kills joy. The third line of this psalm, the Lord, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. I'm focused on what you've given me in this life. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. The Hebrew word for calm is this word for sort of like equilibrium. Everything kind of coming to an even place. You can think of waves that are just tossing up and down. And to be calm is to find equilibrium, to find a place of peace. We need that in our lives. To quiet our souls, to become silent, the mom in Hebrew, to find this kind of struck silence. I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother. It's an interesting phrase, weaned child, isn't it? What's a weaned child? I think if I wanted to think of a phrase that was going to emphasize quiet and peace, I might uh, pick a baby that's just finished um, with its milk and is all stuffed up and fat with milk and just conks out. I love those babies. Um, I've been so happy when my, my own boys have had that state. <laughs> but this is actually a different stage, right? This is not the stage of being filled up and sated. This is the stage of a baby who has started to eat solid foods and is no longer twitching and wondering if mommy has more food for it, but has instead decided to be able to be with the mother in themselves, kind of present with their own supply of food, and mom becomes mom again, or for the first time, and not just a supply for food. And there's this story here of our life with God, that God is not just a cosmic vending machine that where we need to get the things, Lord, I need this, I need that parking space, I need to get to work on it, but is we don't, we've learned to be, relate with God as God, to, and God is raising us up to have a relationship with him, and to have calm and quiet at that moment, to be with, like a child with its mother, not twitching, not irksome, not trying to get at more food, but calm and quiet and content. There's a deep contentment in that image. How do we get to that calm and quiet? Not being ambitious, being content with what we have, letting the Lord be Lord. I think we need something for our bodies and our minds too. And historically that has been, may I suggest, the discipline of Sabbath. So probably one of the biggest changes we've experienced in our spirituality in the last hundred years is the shift away from Sabbath. I don't know if any of you grew up with grandparents like my grandparents, but my grandparents were Sabbatarian. Like it was, they were Baptist, um, and my grandfather was a Baptist preacher, founded a denomination of Baptists in Canada. And we would come home after, even after he would preach, or after we would go to church, and when I was with my grandparents, we would come to back, we'd have a nice Sunday dinner, and then nothing. You do nothing on Sunday. We weren't even allowed to swim on Sunday because it was Sunday. Don't go swimming. It's Sunday. You could walk. You could sleep. You could talk. That was it. <laughs> and I thought it was a little bit tight. You know, I, I, I wanted to run. I wanted to play. Um, but I look back and I see some deep wisdom in that tradition. I remember as a boy, um, a lot of stores were closed on Sunday. You remember that? And things weren't always running. And we have changed that. We have given up on that. 
Um, Jesus kept Sabbath. Paul kept Sabbath. And yes, it's not specific. It's not something that um, you can make arguments that we don't have to keep Sabbath as a commandment, but it might just be a gift. It's in the Ten Commandments. It's there for a reason. And I think we might need to find it again. In her book, um, Keeping the Sabbath Holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, Marva Dawn has some important things to say to us about Sabbath, particularly as it comes to just um, celebrating and ceasing and refreshing our bodies and receiving the gift of God. In particular, when it comes to integrating our mind and giving peace to our intellectual self, she has this to say. I think we've got a quote from it. Um, in, she quotes, she's quoting Jacques Ellul. She says, In the humiliation of the word, Jacques Ellul laments the fact that our view of reality is so distorted by the news, ooh, that's, that's me, um, which comes in to us in small disjointed pieces that change every day and that usually focus on the catastrophic. Now that's a quotable sentence, isn't it? He laments the fact that our reality is so distorted by news, which comes to us in small disjointed pieces that change every day and usually focuses on the catastrophic. I feel like that's the definition of every morning of my life. Every day I get a little dose of something catastrophic. The result is that we develop an inadequate perspective on world events. We forget that the Lord is Lord. We try and manage small things and are what we can get advantage out of. We forget the larger perspective on world events, and a consequent dwindling of our sense of hope and meaning. We don't have much time to think about any headlines except that when they impinge upon us directly, and then our view is usually isolated and does not take into consideration the relationship of that one dimension to the whole of, the, of our situation. In other words, we get these little par- parcels and pieces of news without contemplating or having any space to contemplate how does it, what does it mean? How do we make a good decision about our borders? How do we make a good decision about our country? How do we make a good decision about um, how we live in, as a fruitful and vibrant community here in Rome? Because we don't take time for Sabbath, maybe. She says, Sabbath keeping offers us the time to gain a larger perspective, to view our fragmented existence in light of a larger whole. That sounds like a gift to me to gain a larger perspective, to view our fragmented existence in light of a larger whole. To calm and quiet our souls might take Sabbath, might take time for us to sit with the Lord and find his way for us. For us and my family, this looks pretty minimal. We try and do two things. We try and mark the Sabbath, Saturday night. We start with Saturday night. And uh, maybe I'll light some candles or say a special prayer on Saturday night. Mark the time because that was part of Israel's call in creation. God stopped on the seventh day and marked a day, a time, as holy. In the very fabric of creation, there is a time that is set aside. And the second thing we'll do is we make a space for silence and for each other. We are not, in our house, we choose not to have any screens. We'll find out if my children um, report back to you that that was a little tight, Dad, when they grew up. But we don't have any screens. We don't have any videos. We don't have any um, iPads going in our house to make space for silence and for each other and to just process the week, to take time for one another. I think that gives us space to calm and quiet our souls like a weaned child is our soul within us, to focus on the Lord's view of us and our world. One last thing to mention, and then we'll close. All this sounds 
I hope sweet. It's a little, I feel like it's a little heavy. I feel like I've been a little heavy on you. Maybe it's helpful to say, we don't have to accomplish all of this all in one go, right? I'm not asking us to go home and figure out all the idols that are bothering your life and figure out you got to start Sabbath right now. Um, these things will come in time. They come in a love of God and gifts to us over time. Um, all this stuff, though, I hope is sweet. I hope it re- feels refreshing. I hope it feels like an antidote to the culture of our age, which is fast and productivity-oriented. And then it comes to this last line, O Lord, O Israel, excuse me, hope in the Lord. And it can be for us, um, having done all this inner work, a little bit of a question mark about how that inner work actually ends up providing hope. Does um, all this calmness and quietness and sweetness with Jesus actually change our world? How can it? Isn't it just maybe a little bit selfish to sit around and be sweet with God and have quiet time with God and be calm with God? Isn't that just a little bit privileged when people are dying and there's struggle and suffering and injustice in the world? Well, I would propose that the Bible does is not immune, um, not ignorant to this problem. It knows the problem, and it captures it in this little world word, hope. Yechel in Hebrew, it just, it's kind of a funny word. Sometimes it means to be stuck, to be, um, to be troubled. Um, sometimes it can mean, oh Israel, be, can you can imagine it sort of being stuck or being troubled in the Lord, to be in anguish. And it seems that the only change between being stuck and being in anguish is the patient presence of God, who transforms our being stuck into our waiting, into our trusting, into our calming that maybe I'm stuck because it's not actually up to me to come up with the solution. Maybe I just need to wait a little longer for the Lord to come. It's almost like I keep getting this image when I was reading about this this week. I kept on getting this image of, of being um, an old Israelite guy, you know, and, you, and you're working down the muddy path and your feet kind of get stuck in some mud. And you can start with stuck and you can try and get yourself out and you might just dig your feet in a little bit deeper and deeper until you're in more trouble. But maybe if when you get stuck, you realize there's some waiting that can be done. You wait for that mud to dry a little bit, to become a little bit hard on your feet until you can put some pressure on it and find your path forward. I think it's something like that, that for us to hope in the Lord is not immune to our stuck problems, to the changes and injustices in the world, but to just wait a minute, to pause and say, what is the Lord's will? And it's not going to be accomplished by my power. Whenever I think about the hope of the Lord, I think about the cross, which is a really kind of a strange answer to the problems of the world. I have, we have lots of problems, lots of injustices, lots of difficulties, and God dies on a stick. God dies, on, is impaled on a cross and then rises from the dead. Why do it that way? Now, that made no sense to Israelite mind, which was ready for a strong soldier. And yet, one of the things that the cross teaches us about hope is that it's not just a sacrifice 
that leads to full satisfaction. It's not just a self-giving sacrifice, giving, producing more self-giving sacrifices. It is suffering with us that produces hope. And there's an intentional proximity, there's an intentional goal to come close to us and to suffer with us and to be with us in our pain. And when we calm and quiet our souls, when we wait for the Lord, when we hope in him, he comes within our pain, speaks to our difficulties, and then leads us out of them into his path forward. Not our answer, not our strength that gets us out of our difficulties. We need to wait upon the Lord and let him bring his perspective, his gift, his life to our life. I'm hopeful that I'll learn to stop. And I'll stop trying to answer my own problems. I'll stop thinking that I, my next podcast is going to answer my, own, my problems of this world. But instead, look for God's path forward. Look for his sympathy with me and with the world. And know that he has probably a third way. In the fighting between the two contested visions of our lives, there's probably another answer. And if I'll wait on the Lord and remember his love for me, he will lead me forward and he will provide an answer for my life and for our life together. And there we can echo with Micah 7-7, which says, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. I will wait for the Lord, for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. In 1 Corinthians 6, 22, it said it this way, Maranatha, which is Aramaic, for come, Lord Jesus. Amen? Come, Lord Jesus. Lead us forward. Not by our own strength, but by yours. Let me pray. There's a lot here, Lord. There's a lot that is um, filling our lives and driving us, calling for our attention. We choose to focus on you. Help us to come back to that little child place who relates with you, not as needy, but as wanting to learn and to love. Help us to find that quiet place to trust in your guidance and your lead. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen.